Hello, how about now? Oh, that's loud and clear. Okay. Fabulous. Good, 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 good. I think we figured it out. <laughs> Perfect. Do you want to get started right now? Whenever you're ready, Astrid. All right. Okay. So, hello and welcome, everyone. Um, this is Astrid, and you're listening to my inspiration podcast. And on this podcast, we're talking about people and things that I find really um, interesting and inspiring. So, this is the second episode. And it takes me all the way back to my environmental science roots um, to around sort of 1998, 99 and 2000, when I was an exchange student at the University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma. And I'm super excited to be here today with my former professor, Dr. Robert Nan, who is the a professor at University of Oklahoma for the last 25 years. According to LinkedIn, you hit that milestone on Friday. Um, and he's been teaching students, including myself, about ecological engineering, watershed restoration, and particularly around acid mine drainage. So thank you, Dr. Nan, for being on the show. I'm absolutely excited and thrilled to have you. Thank you, Astrid, so much. I really appreciate you asking me to talk with you today, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Fantastic. So, um, so your classes have been some of the most, you know, interesting and memorable ones during my entire academic career. And you're probably the main reason I did my master's thesis research on ecological engineering. So maybe we can start off with you telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself um, and also what ecological engineering is, as I don't think many people will have heard about it. Well, first, thank you so much for those kind words. I, I enjoy teaching and successful students like you make it all worth it. I am an environmental scientist and a professor at the University of Oklahoma. So environmental science, I think, as most folks realize, is a wide-ranging field, and my professional emphasis is on water quality. And more specifically, my research team focuses on two related areas of inquiry, what we call watershed biogeochemistry, which pretty much means how stuff moves in the environment, the transport and fade of matter and energy and pollutants. And secondly, ecological engineering that you mentioned, the design of sustainable ecosystems that integrate human society with the natural environment for the benefit of both. So essentially we learn how mother nature works and then we try to build ecosystems to solve problems utilizing natural processes. There are some related terms that folks might be familiar with like natural infrastructure, nature-based solutions, nature and nature-based features, and engineering with nature. So in our case, we design, construct, and evaluate functioning ecosystems, wetlands, ponds, and bioreactors, specifically to solve water quality challenges. That sounds awesome. And I think I was part of when, when you kind of first started with all of this work, but um, we'll kind of get to that later. So that the reason I'm really excited to have you on the show, Dr. Nen, is because, um, and what really inspires me about you is that you've done all this work in Tar Creek and you've really, you know, dedicated your life's work to cleaning up the acid mine drainage in the Tar Creek Superfund site. And you've had phenomenal results with that. Um, do you mind elaborating a little bit more on this? And also how did you first get involved with it? Certainly. So the Tar Creek Superfund site is the Oklahoma portion of the tri-state lead zinc mining district, which goes into Missouri and Kansas here in the central United States. The tri-state was a global leader in the production of lead and zinc during much of the 19th and 20th centuries. It was especially important in the first and second world wars. However, all that mining left an environmental legacy, 
Uh, decades of underground mining presents massive challenges uh, at this site. Uh, metal contaminated tailings and waste materials, what we call chat, are present in enormous piles on the surface even to this day. And the underground mine voids are now full of water, which began discharging to the surface under natural head pressures in 1979. So those waters contain elevated concentrations of iron, zinc, lead, cadmium, arsenic, and other trace metals. In 1984, shortly after the Superfund designation by the United States Environmental Protection Agency, impacts to those waters were deemed to be due to, quote, irreversible man-made damages. So no treatment was attempted, and those contaminated waters continue to flow out to local streams and rivers even today. In addition to the myriad environmental and economic quandaries at this particular site, the impacted waters and lands are the designated treaty reservation of the Quapaw Nation, a Native American tribe that was removed to Oklahoma in the 19th century. In addition, those lands and waters of nine additional Native American nations are impacted by the mining, down, mining downstream. So that's since incredible. my rock, oh, sorry. I just said that's incredible. It's a lot of impact. It is. It is. And it's an amazing place to work. Uh, that's one of the reasons that we've spent so much time there. It's a it's a tremendous living laboratory. And since uh, since I arrived in Oklahoma, since 1997, my research team, the the Center for Restoration of Ecosystems and Watersheds, or CREW, has really focused our watershed biogeochemistry and ecological engineering research on the water quality challenges presented at Tar Creek. Um, while active treatment, a very well-developed approach using refined chemicals and fossil fuel energies and kind of 24-hour, seven days a week operation and maintenance commitments can be very effective to improve water quality, it's also very expensive, and mm -hmm. hence the irreversible damage decision back in the 1980s. So our ecological engineering approach, as opposed to active treatment, is passive treatment. We're going to design ecosystem-like process units, utilize naturally occurring biogeochemical and microbiological and physicochemical and ecological mechanisms to help improve water quality. So the systems that we focus on are gravity flow, they're off the grid, they require limited operation and maintenance. They include multiple process units or cells. So oxidation ponds and surface flow wetlands and vertical flow bioreactors, each of them that it's designed for a specific water quality improvement function. Mm -hmm. Maybe retaining iron oxidatively using solar powered aeration, or maybe retaining lead and cadmium anaerobically without oxygen using indigenous microbial uh, consortiums um, based on, a, on, on utilizing compost as an organic matter source. So in all cases, we really are trying to provide the right conditions for the natural processes to help remove the contaminants. Mm -hmm. And then our job is to step back and let mother nature do her thing. So in 2008, about a decade after we started working there, we constructed and began operation of the the first full-scale mine water treatment system of any kind in the tri-state. And today with our state, federal and tribal partners, we operate two of these full-scale passive treatment systems that collectively retain about 160 pounds, excuse me, about 160,000 pounds of iron, 7,000 pounds of zinc, 200 pounds of lead, 
and 20 pounds of cadmium each and every year. Wow. The first system, are now 13 years old, has removed over a million pounds of iron, over 500 tons during its lifetime. Amazing. However, depending upon the year and the season and, and whatnot, these two systems address a fraction of the poor quality waters in the Tar Creek watershed. And there's a, there's a lot of work to be done. Okay, so um, if, I, if you don't mind, I'll just uh, interject in question here. Um, so all these, you know, the retained pollutants you mentioned, like 160,000 pounds of iron and 7,000 pounds of zinc, et cetera, where do they go? And, you know, how can you be sure that they don't leak again? Yeah, it's a great question. So our goal essentially is to, un is to intercept the water where it comes out of the ground before it gets into the receiving stream. So mm -hmm. we're not actually stopping the pollution, but we're intervening before it can have a significant impact. So those metals are retained within the systems in different forms, uh, depending upon the specific element and the specific process in a given uh, cell or process unit. For example, iron is primarily retained as iron oxide. It's rust in the mm -hmm. oxidation ponds. We've got big orange ponds. Um, the surface of that rust is actually very chemically active and it actually holds arsenic as well as some, some of the cadmium and lead. Microbially driven processes in our vertical flow bioreactors form sulfides of zinc, lead, cadmium, nickel, uh, some of the other metals. And those are very stable if we can hold them in that no oxygen environment. So in any case, we're retaining the metals within the system, but we do have a finite design lifetime. These systems are designed for 20 to 25 years, after which that accumulated material is going to have to be removed and handled in some way. But we've essentially bought a couple decades of water quality improvement that can have a significant impact on the receiving stream. That's fantastic. And can, you know, just thinking hypothetically, can, you know, some of these, you know, trace metals be recovered out of the, you know, oxidation ponds and the, uh, the phosphorus, et cetera, and reused and recycled, especially yeah, so after 25 a, years? That's an active area of research for us. So that's what we're trying to trying to understand is if we are able to retain these materials within the system and we know we've got a finite lifetime that we're going to have to go in there and remove them uh, down the line. In the worst case scenario, we would remove them and they would, they would have to be landfilled. Uh, mm -hmm. But in what we're interested in is, is there another alternative? So we now know that the iron oxides that we accumulate actually are great phosphorus absorbents as well. So we might be able to take this, this product produced from the treatment of mine water and help to use it to treat wastewaters or agricultural waters that are, are leading to eutrophication problems in, in lakes and reservoirs and rivers. Um, we are also interested in, in some of the other trace metals and potentially looking at economic recovery of those materials if we can accumulate a, uh, enough of them and uh, of course, depending upon the, the availability of processing and uh, what the market is willing to willing to pay. Fantastic. No, that sounds really exciting. And I know you mentioned, you know, you've you basically bought yourself a couple of decades of, um, you know, clean water and, and better water quality. And that has had a phenomenal impact. Um, so I don't know if you want to elaborate on that, particularly on the sort of fish community. Yeah. So, you know, I can talk about the chemistry all day and, 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 and people's eyes will glaze over and they'll fall asleep. Um, 
But we've also been monitoring the fish community in the receiving stream before and after we implemented the passive treatment system. Um, and we've seen species richness, the number of species and the diversity of the species, as well as biomass increase dramatically. At one location, we've gone from four to 16 species of fish. We've no in-stream restoration, nothing where we've tried to improve habitat or anything like that. All we've simply done is improve the water quality and allowed mother nature to respond. Um, we've also seen the return of beaver into our streams. They tend to present their own challenges and their dams back up water over our monitoring installations and, and cause us some grief, but, but that's okay. We, we welcome them back, certainly. So I, I like to think that we've demonstrated that the irreversible is reversible. Um, in, in my mind, as a, as a scientist and, and, and more so as a citizen, society benefited from the lead and zinc production it had in the tri-state uh, back in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. and, and we have an obligation to clean that up and to help Tar Creek run clear again. And I think you've definitely demonstrated that that can be done. So what are some of the things that you're most proud of? I have a great job. Um, I, I teach and I do research and those are two things I'm very passionate about. Um, and professionally, no doubt, I'm, I'm most proud of my students. Uh, the 70 or so masters and PhD students who have worked with me at Tar Creek and in similar places, and the many undergraduates who've done research with me and taken classes, um, watching them succeed and, and make a difference in the world is, is, is really most rewarding. Oh, fantastic. And just in terms of like the Tar Creek Superfund site, you know, now that you've proven that the area can be sort of cleaned up, um, will, you know, do you think the decision will change? Um, and, you know, you might get more support from the state and federal governments and more involvement from them? We, we certainly hope so. We're hopeful, I should say. We're hopeful. Mm -hmm. um, we've developed some very strong collaborative relationships with the state of Oklahoma and with the Quapaw Nation of Oklahoma, the, the Native American tribe that has their own environmental department and has their own um, uh, uh, essentially construction company, Quapaw mm -hmm. Service Authority. So we're very hopeful that those kind of collaborations, um, taking the research that we've done, we've demonstrated from the university, but then applying it, giving it back to the, the folks that can really do the work and make a big difference on the ground. Um, and especially in this case, the nation, the Native American nation, that lives there and has the, the capacity to really make a difference. I, I'm most excited about the potential future opportunities to work with the tribes uh, to essentially clean their own lands. Fantastic. And then I know you've also done some similar work in Potosi in Bolivia. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about that as well? Yeah, of course, of course. Um, it was actually one of my students who got me interested in Potosi. Uh, the, the site of Cerro Rico de Potosí or Rich Hill of Potosí. It was the, the head of the Spanish silver train uh, back in the 1500s and 1600s. So it's uh, uh, what we call a, a polymetallic mining. So there's lots of different things. They've mined silver there and tin and lead and zinc. Um, and those mines have been in production for nearly 500 years. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they produce some of the most polluted, challenging waters, uh, which with uh, I, I've ever dealt in my, in my professional career. Mm -hmm. um, 
And one of the major differences in Bolivia as compared to the work we do here in the States is that in that high desert environment, so Potosi, uh, we're over 4,000 meters above sea level, um, very limited precipitation on an annual mm -hmm. cycle, and any and all the water is precious. So that those severely contaminated waters are being used for irrigation and, and other uses. Um, mm -hmm. So we've implemented some smaller scale passive treatment approaches down there. We've examined the potential for co-treating the metal contaminated waters with untreated municipal wastewater. So in the developing world, there's also a, a pollution problem from untreated municipal waste. And it turns out if we can mix those in the right ratios, we can see a big difference in the quality of both. Wow. Okay. We've, also, we've also investigated the risk posed by, um, by irrigating staple root crops like potatoes uh, with mm -hmm. these metal contaminated waters. And there's a great deal to be done in Bolivia and, and in other developing regions. And I, I think ecological engineering, that idea of building ecosystems to solve problems is especially attractive in these environments due to its sustainable nature-based uh, approach. Fantastic. And is they, I mean, are you still actively involved in Potosi? I mean, obviously with COVID, I mean, travel might have been a little bit restricted, but what's sort of next for that site? It, it, it certainly has been. Um, again, you know, like so many things that I, I, I can't stress the, the importance of collaboration enough. Um, we've worked with a university in, in Potosi, Universidad de Autónoma Tomas Frias. Um, but we've also got a, a, a nonprofit partner, a group called Engineers in Action, uh, 501c3 that has an office in Oklahoma, but also has an office in, in La Paz, in Bolivia. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been able to keep in contact with our EIA partners. Um, EIA has a different approach than a lot of nonprofits. They work with indigenous engineers in country on, and uh, really show a long-term commitment to the project. So although we've not been able to visit, uh, we, we know that the work that we've done down there is continuing um, as, as much as it can. Um, and we're very hopeful that once the uh, once we get through the pandemic, and I am confident we will get through this, um, we'll be able to go back to Bolivia and uh, and continue the, the work with our students. Fantastic! I think you know all of your work is so inspiring, and you know as I said I think you're leaving a really great legacy, and um, you know that will continue long after you've you know stopped teaching, which hopefully will continue for for a while longer. Um, so, is there anything else that you'd like our listeners? To know or maybe even ways of how they kind of support the work that you do. Uh, thank you, Astrid. It was a, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Um, if, if folks are interested, please, you can follow Crew, our, our research team on Twitter. We're at O-U-C-R-E-W um, or visit our webpage, www.crew.ou.edu uh, to learn more. And if folks are interested in supporting our efforts, there's a contact and giving link on our homepage and they can learn how to do so there. Uh, we need all the help we can get for clean water. <laughs> absolutely. Um, thank you, Dr. Nan, for being on the podcast. I absolutely loved reconnecting with you in this way. Um, thanks everyone else for tuning in. So this is Astrid and you've been listening to my inspiration podcast. If you've got any comments or feedback on the podcast, please get in touch. Or if you'd like to get in touch with my guest, Dr. Nan, let me know and I'm happy to put you in touch or go to www.crew.ou.edu to learn more about all the work that's been doing. Thank you, Dr. Nan. Speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye.